Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Louisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library. Kia ora to all our listeners. Kia ora, Louisa. Kia ora, Karen, and everyone out there today. So today, we have, Louisa and I, have some wisdom to share. Well, we always have wisdom to share, but we have a particularly um, apt moment today to share wisdom in that it is the 31st of March, which means that tomorrow is... April Fool's Day. We are going to be the wise fools. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So as compared to the serious and not so serious librarians, we're now going to be the wise fool librarians. <laughs> I say, I'm, I'm happy to aspire to that. So um, as a librarian, um, as you do, we did a little research on why April Fool's Day is April Fool's Day. And we discovered that it's from the change when the Gregorian calendar took over from the Julian calendar in the 16th century. So in the, in the Julian calendar, uh, New Year's had been on 1st of April, 25th of March, 25th of March, that was done, 25th of March, and it takes two librarians to screw in a light bulb (laughs) (laughs) to find out about April Fool's Day. Julian calendar named after Julius Caesar. Yes, thank you. And Gregorian calendar named after Pope Gregory, I believe. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so when they changed in the Gregorian calendar to the 1st of January, the people who kept celebrating in April, the people who were lagging behind, were called April Fools, who kept celebrating in those five days between the 25th of March and the 1st of April. Is that right? So I I, I believe... I believe there's many theories behind the origin, but I think that we'll go with that one then, shall we? The, the well, change of the calendar. I, I, around spring and uh, it does set, well spring in the northern hemisphere. Let's not forget. But um, I do. I did discover a very interesting um, fact that in Holland, in the Netherlands, April Fool's Day is not traced back to this calendar change, but to a Dutch victory in the same century over a Spanish duke, the Duke of Alva. And there is a famous Dutch proverb which translates as I'm not going to read the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't have the pronunciation skills on that one. But anyway, so translated into English, it's on the 1st of April, Alva lost his glasses. <laughs> oh, you're laughing. This is a prank. So the thing I was reading said, this theory, however, provides no explanation for the international celebration of April Fool's Day. And I was thinking, well, it doesn't even seem to provide an explanation for the Dutch celebration of April Fool's Day because of the Duke of Alva losing his glasses. But I think one of those things where something was lost in translation. Lost in translation or happened on the battlefield that never got passed down to us. Perhaps was censored and only passed on by word of mouth in Dutch families. Anyway, all over the world, what does happen on April Fool's, April Fool's Day is that people play tricks on other people. And for instance, in Italy, where I used to live, these were called fish. These pranks were called fish. I played a fish of April on you. And the big goal was to always pat someone on the back and leave a paper fish um, stuck to their back. I never really understood how the fish got into it. Yeah. Um, And also, like, paper, do you sit the night before and cut these paper fish out? Oh, You rip them out cleverly. My my Catholic um, upbringing is coming in handy here. Uh, So it's the Feast of Annunciation also on the 25th of March, which was formerly the first uh, New Year's Day. And the annunciation and of so fish. We, and so you only eat fish oh, right. on feast days. <laughs> you eat fish, you're not worshipping fish. <laughs> okay. So being a Catholic country, right. maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. Because yeah. it, 
anywhere else in Europe? Where yeah, they well, France. Push on so if you ever go look at um, vintage postcard sites, there's always a lot of old French postcards with beautiful... Um, cartoony type things involving fish through the centuries. So I know it's also in France. Ah. Yeah, so it would make sense that it's a Catholic country thing. Um, so we'll have to see what the Duke of Alva, perhaps when his, you know, the proverb about him losing his glasses, maybe that was, but he didn't lose his smoker to make his fish, you know. <laughs> no, how do the Spanish cook their fish? On the grill. So anyway, it is the day for hoaxes, which I also learned comes from the word hocus, as in hocus pocus. Did you know that? No, but yeah. of course it makes sense, doesn't it? Well, it didn't to me. <laughs> <laughs> so hocus pocus I thought was magic. I mean it is magic it's for magic spells, but apparently the original meaning of hocus was cheat, perhaps yeah. because of playing tricks with magic. Yeah. So anyway, with me, with my head always being thinking about books if not in a book, the word hoax always brings to mind literary hoaxes, of which there are a few different kinds, some involving authors, some involving the work itself, and some involving both. So I proposed to Louisa we could do a show about literary hoaxes. So I'll start us off. Shall I start us off, Louisa? Yes, lead the way, girl. I'll start us off with the biggest literary hoax that we know about, which is Ossian. I might say the biggest literary hoax that we know about because, you know, there could be another one out there that just hasn't been discovered yet. So <laughs> when this show is listened to a century from now and it turns out that some there's another hoax. But anyway, at, at this current year, 2019, the biggest literary hoax that we have discovered is the one about Ossian, who is known as the Homer of the North. This was a blind third century Scottish poet who actually turned out to have been made up in the 18th century, so 15 centuries later, by his discoverer, so oh. everyone I'm making quote marks around that, and translator, more he quote marks. He got away with it for a long time. James McPherson. <laughs> uh, no, he didn't actually get away with it for that long, but yeah, he did, did get away with it. It was very popular for a moment in Scotland. This was, so this is the 18th century yep. right after the um, Jacobite Rebellion, which had failed, so Scotland really needed its mood to be pulled back up and to feel like more of a winner, and so here was this beautiful warrior um, glorious poetry. So I've just, <laughs> quote, I'm going to quote you a passage, Louisa. Don't say thank you. <laughs> I know you thank me. Uh, to me, it sounds a little melodramatic and wordy, but we'll give it a go. So this is nobody guessed that this was made up. Raise ye bards the song. Raise the wars of the streamy Karun. Karakul has fled from our arms along the field of his pride. He sets far distant like a meteor that encloses a spirit of night when the winds drive it over the heath and the dark woods are gleaming around. I heard a voice, or was it the breeze of my hills? Is it the huntress of Ardven, the white-handed daughter of Sarno? Look from the rocks, my love. Let me hear the voice of Kumala. <laughs> so, well, that actually reminded me. Remember the Stephen Hawking show where we played the man speaking Venusian? Yes. <laughs> it did sound a bit like Venusian. But anyway, so in modern times... So he was trying to be a character... Uh, uh, a character in what century? So he had to sort of... He was pretending he was in the third century. Oh, my gosh. Yes, How yes. So that was supposed to be archaic century? sounding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, um, in modern times, so bringing us jumping into modern times... Um, yes, please do. Yes. Well, this is very, very modern because this has just come out. So do you remember that last year's bestseller was a debut novel by somebody named A.J. Finn, which was a pen name because he worked in publishing. It was a thriller. It was on our top 100. It was like the third most checked out book in the library in the oh. first half of last year. Yeah. Um, okay. 
And it was called Woman, Woman in the in Window. The window. Right. That will help you. you. Yeah, sorry, I forgot the title. <laughs> I was a bit hesitant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the one, Woman in the Window. So, um, actually, it turns out, so the author's real name is Dan Mallory. And guess what? Number one, his mother is not dead, despite the fact that he is on record as saying that his mother was sick, dying, or dead for many years, um, many, many years to many different people. He does, number two, he does not have a PhD from Oxford in English literature, which he said he did, especially when he was getting hired by the publishing house. Um, and he did begin a master's program in English literature, but his professors have told reporters now that he had said that to them that he had to withdraw partway through the course because he'd been diagnosed with brain cancer. He has now admitted that he has never been diagnosed with any kind of brain cancer. Ah, so how was he outed then? Uh, he was outed by the voices that had been circulating around in publishing already about him, but he didn't have a bestseller. So, but when he got the bestseller, people started checking in with each other by email and comparing their stories. And yeah, it, it came out. So the question more about how did it take so long to come out, the question is how did he get so high up into publishing? He talked himself into like a $200,000 a year job or pounds a year job. Anyway, some huge... Uh, um, figure. And, um, you know, it's been, um, sadly, it's been related to the fact that he was a white male and that um, white male stories aren't checked if they're successful and talk well, are not as often checked as the stories told by women or mm. um, minorities. Yeah, so that was interesting. So he nearly got away with it. If it hadn't been for his bestseller. If he hadn't become he famous. He would still been in his <laughs> yeah. high-paid job, publishing yeah, yeah. job. Well, you see, he wanted to become a, a famous writer all along. So, yeah, took the wrong route to get there, though. Well, that reminds me of one that I read, um, Forbidden Love by um, Norma Curry. Um, so I read it when it was came out in 2000 and someone help me here. Do you remember the date? I've got the book. No, here. I don't. I, I do remember. It was around when I moved to New Zealand. It was around 2000. 2003, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, it could be, yeah. And um, so I did read it back then. Um, so this is the, um, it's it's presented as a memoir, I guess. Um, and um, so uh, Norma Kuri and her friend Dahlia set up a hairdressing shop in um Aman and Jordan, they are both from very strict Muslim Muslim families. So despite being in their 20s, they uh, have no freedom. They're driven to work every day by their brothers. Uh, but Dahlia falls in love with a Christian um, young man and who was in the army. And uh, for that, her family kill her. Her father actually stabs her five, tw- not five, 12 times. Um, it's an honor killing. And um, so that is the... the um, the the theme behind the book, the the dis- conversation behind the book, honor killings. Um, so, Norma tells us that she had to flee. Well, in the book, she flees from Jordan to Athens, and later on, she tells us that that's where she wrote her book. And then she flees again to um, Australia, where she has to hide in fear of her life. So. Um, Norma becomes the celebrity writer, writer and uh, woman's rights spokesperson because of this book. We just, we just all love it. We would love the story. We fall for the story. So the, the thing is that suspicions, meanwhile back in um, Jordan, suspicions start to um, rise to the surface. Yes, there's aspects of the story that don't quite add up to, to 
well, women actually, it was women's rights groups in yeah. Jordan where um, the realities of time and place yeah. um, went adding up. And so um, it was actually an Australian journalist who delved deeper and exposed the truth, which um, he eventually made into a documentary. So, yes, Norma was born in Jordan, but she left at the age of three. And um, so the rest of the story, her life and the story in the book is actually actually fictional. Um, it was it is a good story. It is a story that, you know, um, it deserved to be told. It's a it's a cruel story. It, she does finish the book with examples of other honor killings. And these are real. And, and she does start that conversation. But yes, um Sadly, it uh, it uh, wasn't real. It wasn't. Uh, it was all in her um, imagination, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, if she—that's the thing. If she had decided to present it as a novel, none of this problem would have come along, because um, and then it would be imagined. But it could be based on cultural practices, which you adapt. You. Um, you know, work into your novel. Yeah. But it's this problem that people wanted to present it because it's their first person participation. So yeah, uh, yeah, you have to wonder why she did it that yeah. way. Um, it's some, it's it's answering some need of their own, and this is comes out really clearly in another example that I wanted to bring up, which are the Holocaust hoax novels. Well, not now called novels, but which have been presented as memoirs through time, and these are often traumatized people who have had something bad happen to them, and they identify with victims, and they identify with victims so strongly that they actually imagine themselves into a situation is you know nobody can ever really tell at which point their imagination has actually carried them away and is a form of mental illness we can't blame them and how much it's um a calculation on their part to just get more attention you know sort of a narcissistic yes. a la trump <laughs> lies <laughs> but um you know one of the so i've got um i can think of You've two examples one? here i've actually thought of them last night and have them here so one is this famous book that was called fragments which came out um sometime right around then before 2000 because i remember that the, it was discovered in 2000 um by a man who purported to be named benjamin wilkomirsky who had oh, um well pronounced there that would oh be yeah well actually it's <laughs> Probably Vilkomirsky, so don't don't tell me how well it was. But anyway, he um, wrote this book saying that he had been a young Jewish child born in Latvia. His parents were taken away or slaughtered or something. Anyway, he was taken to the death camps of Poland where he survived the war. Um, and then he had suppressed his memories of what had happened in the death camps. But later, going to psychologists, his suppressed memories came out. And he's written this first-person story of what had happened to him. And um, so the book, which came out when it was still thought to be true, I was looking at the front cover, the, the inside front cover, and it's got an extraordinary memoir. Yes, very extraordinary. As haunting as a real-life Grimm's fairy tale of a small boy who spends his childhood in the Nazi oh. death camps. But, of course, it actually was a Grimm's fairy tale. Yes. Um, and it has, at the very end, describing beautifully written with an indelible impact that makes this book that is not read but experienced. Fragments is a masterpiece. And uh, interestingly, as I always say, when you open the book, you can see inside where it had been labeled as, in the 940s as a personal memoir of history, 900s Dewey call number, and it's been covered up with a little white tag, which I am now showing Louisa, oh, yes. <laughs> which says F for fiction, Will, because it was changed to a fiction book when it came out that he had been adopted by, actually by a Swiss family and grew up in uh, comfortable circumstances in Switzerland where he spent the war, but um, he had been given up for adoption by his mother, and this was a big trauma for him and apparently so hard for him to live with this trauma of why he had been given up for adoption that he 
actually created an even greater trauma for himself. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think this is the same with um, Norma, that her childhood, her parents separated, um, and there are, and you know, the um, journalists, journalist uncovered sort of accusations of sexual abuse um, and but you know sort of her father was quite an old man by then so didn't go take it any further but there is that sort of unearthing of, of a troubled childhood so perhaps this is what they have in common yeah um so i that those possibly i don't remember well enough the how norma defended herself when the story came out because that's always an interesting thing which i will uh, bring to light with my second <laughs> example of a holocaust memoir which is written by a woman who purported to be called <clears throat> misha de fonseca and this oh, book was again, called brilliant pronunciation brilliant na- oh i thought you were gonna say brilliant choices of names and they are um, <laughs> So she purported to have been, um, the book is called Surviving with Wolves, and she purported to be a seven, uh, that when she was seven, a Jewish girl who when she was seven, her parents were taken away to the death camps, and she was sent to be adopted in Germany. She was Belgian. She was sent to be adopted in Germany, and at a certain point, she walks away from Germany and from this adopted family and tries to walk back to her parents, who she thinks are in Belgium. And, of course, she's starving and, um, you know, cold and frostbite walking through the woods her third or fourth set of woods and she meets up with a wolf pack that she manages to get to adopt her and even manages to be fed by the mother wolf um, I found this you know, really? it's one of those things but this is the thing people wanted to believe these stories and you especially don't want to deny Holocaust survivor stories because we don't want to deny the Holocaust and um so people are willing to suspend their disbelief. So you know, I was having a look at the book now that we know that is totally fake. And there's this scene where she's trying to eat. She sees the mother wolf cub coming and regurgitating food for the little wolf cubs to eat. And she goes up to the mother on her hands and knees and utters little cries. And the mother wolf cub looks at, excuse me, the mother wolf, who normally would attack and kill anybody who got near their cubs, looks at her and regurgitates for her. So she's able to eat this regurgitated food <laughs> from the wolf. And the thing is about Misha de Fonseca, however, which makes it a more, as compared to Benjamin, who many people said, yes, he was a traumatized person, um, even in his adult life. So this woman, uh, when she was confronted, when she was outed, she said, the story is mine. It's very Donald Trump-like. It is not actually reality, but it's my reality. <laughs> And that was her defense. And she actually sued her publishing company at that point, decided not to publicize her book anymore. Maybe they suspended the the PR work while they were deciding whether to change it to a a novel or whatever. Anyway, she sued them for that and got given like $20 million. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And then um, when it all came out and was proven, they then sued her and she had to return the money. Return the money. If she still had it. It sounded like she got a few of her stories mixed up there. (laughs) Was it Romulus and Remus? Um, yeah, she could have been suckling from that. That's a very good point. But I guess the wolf cubs were a little bit older than Romulus and Remus. Well, so. Yeah, her own version of, yeah. as she says. Yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing so, story, though. Yeah. Well, they're all sad, aren't they? Yeah. Um, they might have been an interesting read. In, the, in their own right, if we hadn't, if they hadn't been presented to us as something else, perhaps. That's right. Well, you shouldn't pull the leg. Of, you don't play pranks on people who are unwilling <laughs> readers. You know. Well, um, I dug out uh, a um, well. It's a, a book I've read when I was at school, and I think lots of people in New Zealand have read "Go Ask Alice," written by Anonymous. Um, it's a book that came out in the 1970s, um, and own I. 
when I was looking it up um, just recently, um, it only stopped being printed in 2014. So it's had a long, successful life, despite the fact that this diary of a 15-year-old girl and her journey and her struggles with um, drug addiction, um, written for teens about a teen, and um, you know, they um, written in diary form, isn't it? So it's in diary. diary date, yeah. Yeah, each date is documented. No, some dates are actually a question mark, so she couldn't yeah. actually recall. Um, so it. Well, um, she couldn't recall. <laughs> Yeah, so it was presented to us as a as a 15-year-old's di- a real diary, and then I'm not sure the background of how it came to be that um, it wasn't, in fact, a real 15-year-old who wrote it. It was actually um, a, um, what do you call her, a therapist who has actually written quite a few books um, about teens and their struggles. So this is one of them. Uh, so I'm not sure why she presented it as, as a real teen's diary. When well, because I think it's that thing where they say, oh, teens want to listen to their peers. They don't want to listen to adults. They won't believe us. So let's pretend that it's a 13-year-old girl speaking about things that really happened to her. Yeah. And, and there's lots of really exaggerated things in that book. I remember um, like, you know, getting high and being raped and not remembering it at all because she was high. You know, I really do not believe that. Um, exactly. You don't I remember, remember being raped just because you were high. At the time, too, being at high school reading yeah. it, thinking, oh, am I, you know, cocooned Catholic girls' school, thinking, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. I think that maybe it's in America, but it wouldn't happen here, you know. And not at 15, certainly, but um, for our, our day back there. Um, have we got time for a reading from it, just to see, yep. just to demonstrate. Um, so um, I found a bit about her in the library. So this is this is teen talk, isn't it? May the 22nd. I met a boy in the library today. His name is Joel Reams, and he's a freshman. We studied together. Then he walked me over to Daddy's office. Daddy was uh, worked in the university. Oh, I thought, I thought that was yeah. what they called the principal of the school. They <laughs> no, I thought Daddy. <laughs> what school is this? <laughs> Daddy was busy, so we sat on the front and steps of his building and waited for him. Um, so yeah, he's a very sweet guy. This guy. Um, so that this is how she writes. And every day, you know, Joel walked me over to Daddy's office again tonight. But um, I thought you might find um, on page thirty-one if you ever want to reread Go Ask Alice, uh, the night she lost her virginity while tripping oh. on LSD. Oh, yeah. that sounds right. And, and concerned about her pregnancy, the mm. being pregnant. Yeah. 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 I haven't actually, when you said reread, I've actually never read the whole book. I, when I came to work in the library, it was still in the teen section. This was before it had been outed and I leafed through it. So I did see that one about, when I, I think when I saw that scene about, you know, I'm I uh, got high and I couldn't remember that I'd been raped. Me and my girlfriend. Yeah, I so, started to have my doubts. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's still used as an anti-drugging, anti-drug teaching school in our secondary schools at the moment. Well, I certainly hope not. Um, let us know, people. <laughs> Report yeah. back and we'll take up your cause. I think it might have done we, its day. We are not for lying to anybody. Teens, children, or well, we can we can have Santa Claus. I'm for Santa Claus. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's a collective use of imagination, not really a lie. So yeah, in, in so to use my trademark word again, interestingly. Um, I've I got another example of a, what was considered a literary hoax, but I'm not really sure in this case, although I definitely feel that Go Ask Alice was a literary hoax, um, which is the story of the uh, maritime historical novel writer, or, sorry, historical maritime novel writer, Patrick O'Brien. So, do you know about Patrick O'Brien, Lisa? Well, I know. Say about no, because then that inspires me to tell oh, you about it, and then all okay. our listeners can hear. <laughs> no, I, know, I know about the 
movie. But yeah, anyway, tell yeah, us yeah, about yeah, the yeah, book. No, right. The movie, Master and <laughs> Commander. Very good. Who had, um, the star was... Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, yay. So, like Russell Crowe, Patrick O'Brien's books were immensely popular. Like, we were up talking about, like, Stephen King in that period, Danielle Steele, you know, these books that were constantly on the most um, read lists. And they were set in the last years of the last century. And uh, I remember when it was explained to me when I came to the library and they were still at that point, it was only older men that were reading them. But they were still being read. We did still have them. And I remember asking someone, you know, about what was the lure of these books and someone explaining to me that the people who love Patrick O'Brien are the people who like to forget that the 20th century ever happened. <laughs> so I thought that was quite good. And, um, you know, so the most interesting thing, the, the concern, the biggest concern in the book is what's happening with Napoleon. So, you know, that's actually a lot simpler to deal with than Brexit, if you look at it that way. <laughs> anyway, the thing about Patrick O'Brien was he had these books full of naval lore and lure. And I was reading that actually his editor had at a certain point asked him to tone them down because the books were so crammed with this antiquated terminology and this streams of described as marvelous sounding but impenetrable naval jargon. But apparently this is actually what his readers really liked. And um, so he, as a certain point, it came out that he never had any seagoing experience. He hadn't actually claimed that he had. He did change his name to Patrick O'Brien. It was a, it was not an Irish name. And everyone thought he was this old Irish sea wolf. And he actually wasn't. He lived in England. And people felt that this was a real hoax. They felt really betrayed. And it was a, it was a big drop off of his. Oh, yeah. because their escapism into the, his world, his seafaring Yeah, he was important to them. Was just, just smashed. Exactly. <laughs> so it, his personality was just as important to them as was the content of his books. It was all, they, I guess they identified with him. He was probably living the life. They thought he'd lived the life they would have liked to live. Mm. And, and the other one that is similar to that with the author, although in this case the author actually did make the out-and-out -out claim, is about one of my favorite books. I was very sad when I saw this happen. So when I was growing up, um, I read this book called How Green Was My Valley, which was this beautiful book. I must have read it 15 times um, about growing up, a first-person story about growing up in a Welsh mining town. And the author, Richard Llewellyn, apparently, it turned out, had spun this myth, I didn't know this as a child, where he was telling people that he had been born in Wales and worked in the pits, but he was not. Um, he was Welsh. His parents were Welsh, but he was born in London. His father had a pub, and Richard Llewellyn's first job was not working in the pits, but washing dishes at Claridge's. And all of his knowledge of mining, this is interesting for us that love books, came from a family who ran a bookshop in Charing Cross Road in London. And they would tell him the stories of their father's experience in the Welsh pit, and then he turned them into this beautiful novel. So oh, I'm yeah. just picturing him washing the dishes in Claridge's, just and thinking that, about. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's actually funny. Because one of the things that's so beautiful about the book that really struck me as a child, so I'm not going to say child, you know, six-year-old, I'm saying 12-year-old, adolescent, is the book is very hung over with a sort of premonition of beautiful days that are going. And that's why, in fact, it's called How Green Was My Valley. Mm. And the people that he loved who had died, he's looking back as an older man, he's having to leave Wales. And, um, and he says, how green was my valley and the valley of those that are gone. And there was this sort of mythic innocence to this beautiful land. Um, and, you know, I I remember it was funny because I re-looked at it um, to in preparation for this show because it was on ebook. We have it as an ebook, and I was rereading it. And there's very a lot of pontification in it that I had completely forgotten about. <laughs> Lots of pontification. I was going, how did I ever read that when I was twelve? But um, I think like. As, as I think everyone should when you read, you read the parts that mean something to you. And if there's a part that doesn't mean as much to you, 
I say just skip it. I'm happy to go on record as saying that. <laughs> but um, I just remember these beautiful scenes, like this one where his mother makes a blackberry tart, and there's a description of him biting into this blackberry. He was a born writer, and he had a wonderful subject matter, but he just shouldn't have gone over the over the edge there to claim yeah. that it was you he know, just the story he lived. Could have separate. Yeah, it's um, the realism some, from the imagined. Yeah, well, the imagination became so strong that, you know, you just had to, to be in it in first person. So. Yeah, but wouldn't wouldn't we do the same if we were stuck in a job, you know, <laughs> washing dishes yeah. in carriages? Yeah, <laughs> well, interesting, they said that he um, he actually went back on visits. He eventually bought himself a house in Wales with the money that he'd made, but um, he didn't stay in it very often. He more often stayed in Claridge's, <laughs> or the equivalent of Claridge's in Wales near the house where he was. So, anyway, we're coming close to the end of our time, but I have brought in a special surprise for us, Louise. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, so, in terms as you do, as you do, as I, Karen, do, and sometimes it's Louisa. So today it's my surprise, and it's a sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet about fools. So I thought it was appropriate. It's sonnet one ten. So you have to know that in the Shakespearean day, fools were called motleys, referring to their harlequin dress with all the different colors. So oh, motley yes. being, you know, mixed like motley crew. So it goes like this. Alas, tis true, I have gone here and there and made myself a motley to the view, gored my own thoughts, sold cheap what is most dear, made old offenses of affections new. Most true it is that I have looked on truth askance and strangely, but by all above these blenches gave my heart another youth, and worst essays proved thee my best of love." Now all is done, save what shall have no end. Mine appetite I never more will grind on newer proof to try an older friend, a God in love to whom I am confined. Then give me welcome, next my heaven the best, even to thy pure and most, most loving breast. Kakiteano, Kakiteano Luisa. We'll be back next week. Happy April April Fool's Day. And remember, it ends at midday. brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day.